Good evening, everybody. Good to see everyone. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 16? We're in the home stretch. Good news is we can study it and not have to live through it. But uh, in our study, we have come to chapter 16. And uh, so far in the book, we have seen the seven seal judgments, followed by the seven trumpet judgments, and now we are about to see the final and most devastating judgments of all, the seven bold judgments, also known as the bowls of God's wrath. As we pointed out last time, the Greek word for bowls doesn't mean a deep mixing bowl type of a thing, but a shallow saucer. The idea is that these judgments are going to be poured out quickly, almost flipped out of a shallow saucer, and uh, they won't be long and protracted is the idea. They will be quick, rapid-fire judgments without mercy, so there's no need uh, for God to uh, lengthen them out to give people time to repent. These seven last plagues come one after another in just a few months' time. Uh, right before the return of Jesus Christ, the Battle of Armageddon, which is really no battle at all, uh, then followed by the establishment of the kingdom age. The reason they come in such rapid-fire succession is because by this point, the day of salvation is over. What do I mean? Everyone by this point who was going to get saved has gotten saved. Those folks who are not saved at this point in the tribulation period are the earth dwellers, a title given by the Holy Spirit to a group of people that this is their home. They want nothing to do with the God of the Bible. They have no thought for any life except the life they have on the earth. This is their home. This is their kingdom. And so they are the ones that will be left at this point in the tribulation period. They have rejected Jesus Christ over and over again. God sent the two witnesses right after the rapture happens. Uh, they were used to save 144,000 Jewish evangelists who gave the gospel to these earth dwellers. Okay, I'm hearing something. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, at one point, God even sends an angel to fly through the heavens declaring the everlasting gospel. So they have no excuse. They have no excuse for why they have not received Christ. Uh, their hearts have been so hardened that uh, they don't want to receive Christ. And so the day of salvation is over uh, for them. Now, in chapter 16, verse 1, we read... John speaking, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So, guys, the first bowl is poured out on the worshipers of the beast and his image. The first bowl, verse 2, So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who, who had the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. The question has been raised by some, whether the bowls of the wrath of God come after the trumpet judgments, or are they identical? In other words, are they really the same judgments, spoken of in slightly different ways, but really are they the same exact judgments? Now, there's people that will point out the similarities. Similarities don't mean that they're the same judgment, though. They're similar. And that's true, they are. There is a lot of similarity, but if you study the trumpets and bold judgments, you can see that um, there are some striking differences too, even though the order of the judgments is the same. In the trumpet judgments, generally speaking, a third of the earth and or the heavens are afflicted by the judgments of God. Whereas in the bold judgments, the effects of the judgments are on the entire planet the entire earth and as such they are much more severe and final in character accordingly it seems best to follow the interpretation which has long been held by the church i'm talking about the um, evangelical church throughout history that the seven bowls are really an expansion of the seventh trumpet now remember when we first started chapter six where we were introduced to the first seven judgments, the seal judgments, right? We said that the sixth, the, um, 
seventh seal gave rise to the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet led to the seven bowls. So actually, that seventh seal contained all the other judgments. So for most people in the church that have studied Revelation, they say that really what you have is the seals, seventh seal then was an expansion, the seven trumpets were an expansion of the last seal, and then the seven bowls were an expansion of the seventh trumpet. Uh, in a way, they yes, they're all the judgment of God, but they are not overlapping in the sense that they all take place at the same time. Some people believe that, and I think we've shown you that they're actually chronological in order. So you do have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowl judgments, but in some way they are connected. Now the order, guys, is climactic. What, what do I mean? Well, the judgments become more intensive and more extensive as the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ approaches. So they're building to a crescendo. The bowls are really the crescendo. Uh, it's kind of like Jesus likened his coming to a woman in labor, right? And how the labor pains start off, you know, light and far apart. And right before the child is born, the labor pains are real intense, coming one after another, right on top of each other, and then the child is born. Well, these judgments have been building like a woman in labor. By the time we come to the bold judgments, the, things are really reaching a crescendo now. And what is going to happen after the seventh bowl judgment? The kingdom is going to be birthed. Jesus will come back, birth the kingdom, and then like a woman who has been in travail, birth, pangs, when the child is born, she has peace, Jesus said, comparing his whole thing to a woman in labor. When Jesus comes back, all wars will cease. Uh, all strife, all turmoil, all adversity, all corruption, the kingdom will be the perfect administration run by the perfect leader, our Lord Jesus Christ, our King, right? Now, verse 2 talks about the loathsome sores that break out on people when this bold judgment is poured out. It reminds us of the sixth plague in Egypt in uh, Exodus chapter 9. But you can, and you can go back and, and refer to these on your own because a lot of these uh, do uh, reflect in some way what God did uh, with the uh, ten plagues of Egypt. Uh, they're not exact. Those were limited to one place on the planet, Egypt. Uh, these will be spread out over the whole planet, okay? But uh, you have a little preview uh, through the plagues of Egypt for these ultimate uh, plagues. But something else. In Deuteronomy 28, God prophesies something that has never happened. It's never happened in the history of Israel, all right? So we assume then what God was talking about way back in Deuteronomy was the events are going to unfold right before Messiah returns with regard to these judgments. I'll read a couple of verses. You can go back and read the whole chapter on your own. Deuteronomy 28, verse 27. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Verse 35, the Lord will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils which cannot be healed, and from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. Now, only those who have submitted, this would be Jew and Gentile. Not all Jews are going to be saved during the tribulation period. A lot will be, uh, but not every Jew. So you're going to have unbelieving Jews, of course, a lot of unbelieving Gentiles, right, who will follow the Antichrist, who will worship the beast. And only those who have submitted to the beast, only those who have worshipped his name, taken his mark, uh, those who have rejected Christ and rejected the warning of the angel will be subjected to these judgments, all right? What am I talking about? Well, an angel in chapter 14 uh, warned the people of the world. Turn back to Revelation 14. Since you're all in the neighborhood. Um, Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. See, there's that phrase again. The earth dwellers, right? They're given a chance. 
by the label God has given them, it doesn't appear any of them get saved. But they're given a chance. Nobody can say, well, God, you never gave me a chance. That, that's a flat-out lie. God gives everybody a chance, right? And so on. But um, so God sends this uh, angel flying through the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. I'm emphasizing what I think the angel is really getting at. Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him is the idea. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Guys, I believe what's being implied here is that these people at this point are worshiping the creation and not the creator. Idolatry is like that. Idolatry is where, and God's judging the world for its idolatry at this point, right? But idolatry is like that. It is a substitution for what should be the worship of the true and living God, the creator of all things. You substitute the real true God with something else that you then worship. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 1, that although they knew God, unbelievers, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became foolish in their hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, right? Uh, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God made a, uh, into an image like corruptible man and four-footed beasts and creeping things and so on. And so God gave them up to their idolatrous practices, okay? But um, who are the people worshiping at this point? Unbelievers, they're worshiping the Antichrist. We just talked about that. He's going to start a brand new religion. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 3 and 4 talks about that. Other places you can read. He's going to start his own religion, setting his image up in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and demanding to be worshipped as God. Right? So people will be worshiping him. But I also believe from the language here that people in some way will also be worshiping the earth. You know, there are those who actually worship Mother Earth. Gaia is a term that uh, some people have given the earth. Uh, they believe she's a living entity. And uh, we're killing her. Right? I mean, that's how they, a lot of them think. Um, I don't want to get into the whole detour, but some years ago, a kind of a, a Stonehenge-like set of stones appeared in Georgia. Uh, this ma magically appeared. I'm not saying they actually magically appear, but somebody waited till the cover of darkness to set these stones up. They're called the Georgia Guidestones. You can check it out. Not now. You can check it out on your own. And they have a, a series of commandments on, I think, one of the stones. And the first commandment is that the earth should not be any more than, have contained any more than 500 million people, lest we start killing the planet. Now, there are people who really believe that. And there are very powerful people who are into depopulating the earth. And again, I'm not getting into that tonight. But boy, you can plug a lot of things in. I heard Ted Turner years ago say we can't just depend on uh, abortion and some of these other things that depopulate the earth we got to move forward using any means necessary because we're killing mother earth and if we don't step in and you know and so on I, i'll let you run with that okay um but these last plagues guys will be directed at the idolatry of the earth dwellers and their false gods Revelation 16, verses 10 and 11 suggest that these sores, now that was the first bowl, right? These loathsome sores begin to break out on people. Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 and 11 suggest that these sores do not disappear. For by the time of the fifth bowl, people are still in pain from the first bowl judgment. Ray Stedman was a great commentator of Scripture he said, and I quote, the corruption, pain, and ugliness that will afflict the flesh of men and women in the days of the first bowl of wrath are an outward symbol of the inner corruption, pain, and ugliness of sin. This judgment is in the form of sores. 
painful and ugly lesions that break out over the whole body. If you have ever experienced an outbreak of boils, painful, inflamed, pus-filled, swell, wow, I just ate dinner not long ago. Painful and ugly lesions that break out all over the body. Uh, painful, inflamed, pus-filled swellings on the skin. If you've experienced that, he said, you have just the barest beginning of an idea of the suffering this judgment entails. It's interesting, and some of you folks are medical people, it's interesting to realize that boils that erupt on the skin are often symptoms. Symptoms. They're not really the disease. They're the symptoms of something going on inside the body that is wrong that is a disease. Of course, what is wrong? Why is God allowing these loathsome sores to appear on people's bodies? Because something is really wrong inside. And we're talking spiritually now. Uh, their hearts are not given over to the true God who made them, loved them, sent his son to die for them. They're rebels at heart. They would rather worship and serve the creation, ultimately the Antichrist. And I think the Antichrist religion is going to be, I've ascended to Godhood, I'll teach you how you can ascend to Godhood. Man has always wanted to worship himself. That's the greatest idolatry in the world, the worship of self, right? It started in the Garden of Eden. When, when Adam and Eve rejected the worship of the true God and thought they knew better than God what was best for their lives, and so they did the very thing God commanded them not to do. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They fell. But what was, what was that? That was an, uh, an attempt to put themselves on the throne to worship themselves as God. That rebellion started in heaven before the earth was ever created. A very powerful, beautiful angel named Lucifer Decided he wasn't happy being number two behind the Trinity. He wanted to be the Most High. So he led a revolt in heaven. A third of the angels followed him in his rebellion. Of course, they were defeated. Nobody's going to defeat God. You've got to be pretty deluded to think you can go to war against God and win the Almighty Creator. So what happened was when God created the earth and, and, and made Adam and Eve, Satan realized how much you want to get at somebody and you can't get at them. You're really evil. Who do you get at? They're kids. They're kids. You have to be pretty evil to do that. And Satan fits that bill. And so what failed in heaven, he exported to the earth. Thought, if I can't bring God down, I'll corrupt the creation that he said was so perfect, and I'll let man, you know, reject God as their king, and so on. Um, Something very wrong in the heart of man. We're seeing it more and more today. I mean, it's, it's shocking to see what has happened to some countries that have Judeo-Christian heritages. You know, America, Australia, England. England's actually gotten a little better with COVID, right? But, but you have countries that have devolved into fascism. Uh, you know, it, it's amazing. They're, they're going around locking people up who are not wearing masks. Police beating them in the streets. It's, re it's really shocking. The evil heart of man is becoming more and more unhinged and unrestrained. Now, here, here's something you might not have ever heard. When I was studying for this, there are some scholars that believe that the language of this verse in the Greek seems to imply, listen, that the mark of the beast is actually the thing that causes the painful source. That the mark of the beast, it, in the Greek, the way it's phrased, it could imply that the, the source that men are cursing God uh, for allowing to happen to them are really sores that have been caused by the mark of the beast itself. We said when we studied chapter 13 that this mark is a probably some kind of technology that is implanted in the forehead or on the right hand of the people that follow the Antichrist, which will link them uh, consciously to the Antichrist in some way. They're going to be actually linked, uh, co their consciousness with his consciousness. They'll be like the collective Bor uh, Borg, you know, in Star Trek, uh, where they all kind of function as one, think the same, are let... 
Maybe something goes wrong with this chip, if that's what it is, a microchip of some kind. And it starts poisoning people from within, and the bowl of the loathsome boils and sores are really just the symptom of what's going on inside. What's the real problem? They've rejected the true God and are worshiping a false God, right? So the second bowl, verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. And it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Uh, This judgment is similar to the first plague in Egypt, which you can read about in Exodus chapter 7. And it's similar to the second trumpet judgment in Revelation Revelation chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. But this time the effects will not be local as they were were in Egypt, Exodus 7. Or limited, like we saw in Revelation chapter 8. Again, this, guys, will be a worldwide judgment since the oceans cover approximately 70% of the Earth's surface. So if all the seas, and the word seas could simply mean all the bodies of salt water on the Earth, fresh water is going to be targeted next. But right now when it talks about seas, we're talking about all the uh, bodies of salt water, seas, oceans, and so on, on the face of the earth, if all of them are impacted, that's 70% of the earth's surface. Therefore, this has got to be a worldwide judgment, right? Unlike the others, similar, but limited. All right, limited. And in Egypt, local. Guys, after the angel dumped the contents of this bowl, the sea, and listen, the sea is vitally important to life on the earth. The sea, again, salt water, bodies of, salt water bodies of water, became blood like that of a dead man. Can you imagine that for a second? Just let that kind of sink in. All the, the water, all the oceans and seas on the face of the earth become blood. One commentator said, and I quote, to the amazement, horror, and despair of the world, all the earth worshipers, right? The oceans will no longer be fluid, but will become thick, dark, and coagulated like the pool of blood from someone who has been stabbed to death, end quote. Pretty graphic, but I think he's right on. Now listen, exactly what supernatural means God is going to use to destroy the oceans, we're not told. It's not important that we understand the mechanics. God knows what he's doing, right? Um, But the effects, uh, commentators have pointed out, the effects will resemble um, a phenomenon known as red tide. What is red tide? Well, let me read to you from commentator John Phillips, who wrote wrote about this. He said, and I quote, From time to time off the coasts of California and elsewhere, a phenomenon known as the red tide occurs. These red tide, uh, tides kill millions of fish and poison those who eat contaminated shellfish. In 1949, one of these red tides hit the coast of Florida. First, the water turned yellow, but by midsummer it was thick and viscous with countless billions of dinoflagellates, tiny one-celled organisms just everywhere, okay? 60 miles. You've all, you've all been to a beach where there was a couple of dead fish on the shore. You know how that smells? A couple of dead fish? We're talking about fish that have died by the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, right? He said back in 1949, 60 miles, 60 miles of stinking fish followed the beaches. Much marine life was wiped out. Even bait used by fishermen died upon the hooks. Eventually, the red tide subsided only to appear again the following year. Eating fish contaminated by the tide produced severe symptoms caused by potent nerve poison, a few grams of which distributed aright could easily kill everyone in the world. An unchecked population explosion of toxic dinoflagellates could kill all the fish in the sea, end quote. So I don't know if this is what God's going to use, this red tide phenomenon, but he's going to do something to cause all the seas and oceans on the face of the earth to become red like blood, whether they're going to actually be blood 
uh, it says that they be, it became blood as of a dead man. So this is going to be actually, uh, from what I take it here, literal blood. Literal blood. Um, the stench from the dead, decaying bodies of every living thing in the sea. Now remember now, the second trumpet, similar, but that was only a partial death of those things in the sea. But now the stench of the d dead, decaying uh, bodies of every creature in the sea, um, decaying the stench, it's going to be unimaginable. Henry Morris, who was a uh, devout Christian, I saw Henry at a pastor's conference one year, he amazed us all. You know, he was like in his 80s, and he just rattled off scriptures he taught constantly. We all stood and gave him a standing ovation at the end. It was so powerful. Uh, but he was also a scientist, okay? And he's with the Lord now, but he, he's written a great, two great commentaries, one on Genesis, one on Revelation. They're worth getting for your library if you're interested in studying those books from a scientific Christian, but from a scientific point of view, right? Uh, but he said, with regard to all of this, he said, and I quote, in this toxic ocean, nothing can survive. And soon all the billions of fishes and marine mammals and marine reptiles and the innumerable varieties of marine invertebrates will perish, uh, thus still further poisoning the oceans and contaminating the seashores of the world. As God had created every living soul in the waters, Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, so now every living soul died in the sea, end quote. This is God's world. If people don't want to honor God, they want to drink his water and breathe his air and eat his food, well, if they're not going to honor him, he's going to withdraw those blessings. He owes no man anything. He doesn't owe people the right to breathe or the right to eat or to drink water and so on. He's seems like he's withdrawing those blessings because of man's hatred toward him and rebellion guys so much of the world's food comes from the world's oceans and seas this is going to really hit the um the food supply hard going to really hit the food supply hard and lead to worldwide famine something else you may not have realized 80 percent of earth's oxygen doesn't come from the rainforest it comes from the phytoplankton and algae in the oceans and seas of the world. If they're wiped out and every living thing dies, that means every algae and phytoplankton, they're all going to die, reducing the oxygen on the earth by 80%. Can you imagine that? People will have a hard time breathing at this time. That's why I say these seven bold judgments can't be a long, drawn-out period of time. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 22, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would remain upon the earth. That's because of the severity of these judgments. They're going to be boom, 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 rapid fire judgments that will bring Jesus back to the earth. They're going to wipe out many. But if they weren't limited in time, scope, uh, not scope, but, but the length of time they're uh, upon the earth, nobody would remain alive. The third bowl. Verse 4, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Now the fresh water is being, uh, is being um, focused on by the Lord's judgments, okay? Um, what happened to the Nile River in Egypt? Remember now those ten plagues of Egypt in some way were the kind of the, the prelude, a little preview of these ultimate plagues that were going to be coming during the tribulation period. Uh, what happened to the Nile River in Egypt? Again, Exodus chapter 7. Uh, also, you can see Psalm 78, verses 43 and 44. What happened to the Nile River back then now happens to the entire world's supply of fresh water. All the fresh water is now targeted on the face of the planet. Someone has commented on this. He said, and I quote, The contamination of the world's oceans will be an environmentalist's worst nightmare. But the destruction of the world's remaining fresh water supply will be a catastrophic, staggering blow to fall in humanity, end quote. 
by the time the third bowl is poured out, listen, fresh water is going to be critically in critically short supply anyways. Okay, what do I mean? Well, remember the third trumpet judgment, Revelation 8 verses 10 and 11, resulted in the poisoning of one-third of the world's fresh water. You also remember how that when the two witnesses came, uh, chapter 11, verse 6, we read, they have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They prophesied, will prophesy in the first three and a half years of the, of the seven-year tribulation period. And they will have power over the waters to turn them to blood. Also, the temporary restraining of the, of the earth's winds. What do I mean? Well, chapter 7, verse 1. Remember, an angel held back the winds. I don't see anywhere where that was, you know, the angel released his hold on the winds. So ever since chapter 7, verse 1, the, the, there was an angel restraining the earth's winds. That's going to cause drought. I, I'm no meteorologist by any means. But from what I've read, with no wind to move clouds and weather systems around the planet, the hydrological cycle will be disrupted and no rain will fall as a result. Think about that. No rain will fall during this time, okay? So the destruction of what is left of the earth's fresh water is going to be an unthinkable hardship and suffering. Uh, I just imagine the scene is going to be so unimaginably horrible that people who read this before it happens, okay? I mean, there will be people, especially uh, right at the beginning of the last seven years. Um, and, of course, you're going to have, you know, the two witnesses, and then eventually the 144,000 screaming. I, I think Revelation is going to be the main book that it's going to be preached out of during that time, okay? And when people that are being witnessed to read what's coming, and, and read this section that we're in right now, uh, it's going to be so unimaginably horrible it, to their thinking that they're going to wonder how a God of love, compassion, mercy, and grace could send such a judgment upon the world. It's always, you know, it's always God's fault, right? Man brings, lives in rebellion and brings judgment upon himself, but it's always God who is the bad guy. I mean, even insurance companies talk about, you know, an act of God. You know, when a tree falls and smashes your an act of God. It's always God's fault, right? But people, you know, true to form, they're going to read this and go, well, gee, if that's coming, how can a God of love do something like this, right? And so here in the text, there's kind of a brief interlude in the pouring out of the judgments while an angel speaks in God's defense as if God needs to be defended. But an angel speaks in God's defense because this angel poured out this bowl, this saucer, and apparently he didn't know what was going to happen. And when he saw the effects of what the judgment was upon the earth, he cries out, oh, Lord, right on. You are right. Oh, wow, that is incredible, right? Verse 5. And I heard, an I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and, is and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Guys, it's completely fitting that those who delighted in shedding the blood of God's saints, his prophets, those who were sent to warn them, to appeal to them, get saved, come to Christ, escape the wrath to come, right? What happened? Well, these people are going to take God's servants, his prophets and saints, and they're going to torture and kill them in the name of the Antichrist, because in their minds, he's God. And so to wipe out this false god named Jehovah, his followers, that's righteous. Not realizing that they're actually going to be working for the devil. Antichrist is not the true God, obviously, right? But um, they delighted in shedding the blood of God's servants, his saints, prophets. So now they're forced to drink 
blood. That's why the angels go right on, Lord. Wow. You know? When I do my morning devotions, and I happen to be in the Old Testament, working, I just work my way through and go back, and, you know. And I, and I read the, the laws that God laid down. I am always struck by how righteous they are. It's, I can't help but say, Lord, right on. This is perfect. I mean, you know, the, where the punishment absolutely fits the crime. Where, where severe acts of violence are not a slap on the wrist. Or somebody does something very minor is not thrown into jail the rest of their life. That, that's man's so-called justice, right? But when God lays down his law, it's so right on fair and just. The angel can't, I mean, he knows that God's righteous, but he can't help himself um, say, wow, Lord, you know, they refused the living water of Jesus Christ. And now you're giving them the waters of death to drink. And so even in the midst of the judgment, <laughs> the angel declares, you are righteous, O Lord. Guys, not only is God's justice fair, and by the way, people want to find fault with God, right? Um, it's interesting how, uh, as my pastor used to say, it's interesting how bad my sins look when you're committing them. When I'm committing them, they don't look so bad, right? When you're committing them, wow, Lord, give them justice, right? Now, when I do something wrong, I don't ask God, give me justice. God, I want mercy. Be merciful to me, Lord, right? But God's judgments, you know, God's justice is fair. It's pure. It's appropriate. There's no vigilante justice with the Lord. His judgments are always righteous. I'll just read some of these to you. You can write down the references. In Genesis 18, verse 25, Abraham asked rhetorically, he knew the answer, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly or righteously? And the implication was, of course he should, because you always do that, Lord. David wrote in Psalm 19, verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true, and they are righteous, what? Altogether. Psalm 119, verse 75, the psalmist added, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. And Paul wrote in Romans 2, verse 5, he wrote of the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's coming. I like J. Vernon McGee. I don't know if you've ever, how many of you have ever heard of J. Vernon? He's still on the radio. It's not the Lord. He's so great that they, you know, he's got a whole ministry that wanted to keep his teachings, you know, out there. So you can listen to him on the radio. Uh, if you ever want a good commentary series, um, J. Vernon McGee's five-volume, I think it's worth investing the money. What I love about J. Vernon McGee is that he was an old country boy who grew up and, you know, he, he, he was saved young. But when he grew up and started preaching for the Lord, he didn't care about what people thought of him. He was not one of these modern celebrity preachers who want to preach so they can win friends and influence people. Jay Vernon, you know, he just told you like it was. That's just all he knew, right? Uh, one day one woman called up on the radio, and uh, she, she said to Jay Vernon, she said, Pastor Vernon, she said, um, she said, um, he, she said, you know, there are women in our church that want to put on makeup and lipstick. Now, Dr. McGee, you know that's not right. You know that that's wrong. Don't you tell them that what they want to do, painting their faces up and all, that's really wrong. I love what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, Madam, Southern draw, Madam, if the barn needs painting, paint it. <laughs> that's all he said, right? So you got to understand the guy who made this quote, right, in the face of what we've just been studying. J. Vernon McGee said, and I'm quoting now, My friend, whatever God does is righteous and holy. If you don't agree with him, it's too bad. You're, you are wrong, not God. Imagine a little man standing up and saying concerning the Creator, I don't think he's doing right. I have a question for the person who would make a statement like that. 
What are you, what are you going to do about it? In fact, what can you do about it? If you are not in agreement with God, you had better get in agreement with God. God is righteous in everything he does, end quote. Well, if we had some more preaching like that today, I think that people would be, a few more people would be walking the straight and narrow. But everyone wants to placate. Everyone wants to dance around the issues, right? Everyone wants to just, you know, uh, keep things nice and warm and fuzzy and so on. We need men of God today, women of God, that are not afraid to take some heat, to say, look, this is wrong. Uh, you Maybe you saw that Pastor John MacArthur had encouraged pastors from all over Canada and America to stand together, what was it, January 16th, to preach on God's definition of sexuality from the Word. We did. I, I joined in that. Because of what Pastor John MacArthur taught, Facebook, um, YouTube has permanently banned him. Because he had, it was hate speech, they said, to say that God only made two genders. And there's no such thing as transgender people. They're confused. They need help. They need our prayers. They need our love. But God didn't make, make people confused about their sexuality. He made male and female, and that was it. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. But for that hate speech, quote-unquote, he was banned permanently from YouTube. If he's on Facebook, that's next, if they haven't done it already. But that's okay. As Paul said in Galatians, if I seek to please men, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. The time has come for the people of God to decide where their loyalties lie. To the world or to the Lord? Now, that's for me and my house. I know who we're going to serve, right? So, Revelation 16, verse 7. John said, And I heard another angel from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So, another angel speaks up now and says, wow, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And that is obviously a, a, a true statement, right? We've just talked about that. How about the fourth bowl, verse 8? Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. The worship of the sun. Power was given to who? Him. That's personifying the sun. Uh, often in Scripture, in, the inanimate, inanimate are personified as people. Psalms, the trees clap uh, for the glory of God. The, 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 the mountains sing forth His praise. Well, those things aren't alive, but it's personifying the creation that all the creation is worshiping the Creator, right? So here, the sun is personified like it's a person. And it's speaking and or acting. And power was given to him, to the sun, to scorch men with fire. Uh, guys, do you, I don't know if you realize, the worship of the sun, the worship of the sun is the oldest form of idolatry in the world. I don't know if you realize that. In fact, all other forms of paganism derive from the worship of the sun. We understand why. Because... Without the sun, nothing could live. And so they understood the power of the sun to bring forth life, crops and things like that primarily because they lived off the land. Um, so for people that were uh, ignorant and pagan, to worship the sun just seemed natural. But it all went back. It all, it all got its start way back in the book of Genesis with a man named Nimrod. Nimrod. The name Nimrod means we will rebel. Now, he wasn't the first rebel uh, in the universe. That would go to Lucifer. But he was the first rebel on the earth who organized a grand rebellion. What do I mean? He was the first cult leader on the face of the earth who established a sun worship cult. And so Nimrod built the Tower of Babel to worship the sun. But not just the sun. Also the uh, stars and the moon as well. I'll just read to you from Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. 
Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now you read that, and you'd be prone to think that Nimrod was a mighty hunter of animals. You know, one of these big game hunters, right? That kind of thing. The idea, and this comes through through the language, but also through the history. The idea is that Nimrod wasn't a, wasn't a mighty hunter of animals. Listen, he was a mighty hunter of men. When I say men, I mean mankind, men and women. In other words, as a cult leader, he hunted the souls of men and women. But he was also a political despot, a tyrant ruthlessly conquering men and establishing an empire. Now hang on to that, all right? He built four cities in Shinar. Shinar uh, is in uh, modern, uh, uh, modern Turkey, the southern region of, I'm sorry, Turkey, I, said, I meant to say Iraq. Shinar is um, actually modern Iraq in the southern region. He built four more cities in Assyria, which would have been in northern Iraq, and then all the way uh, to um, southeast uh, Turkey. So that, that whole area, okay? But the capital of his kingdom was where he built the Tower of Babel, a place that later became known as Babylon. Babylon, um, which is located, was located in the south-central area of Iraq. That area is known as the Fertile Crescent. That's where all civilizations began. That's where all life started. That's where the Garden of Eden was at one time. We know the Garden of Eden was right there where the Euphrates and Tigris intersected. Now you say, well, let's just go there and find it. Well, the flood changed the topography of the earth so that where the Euphrates and Tigris is today, um, it's not where they used to be, okay? But that area is, go, it was the, is called the, the Cradle of Civilization, the Fertile Crescent, right, which is the symbol of Islam, um, but Nimrod understood that every empire needs a capital as a way to unite its citizens politically. But also it needs a center of worship to unite the people religiously. So Babylon became both the political and the spiritual center of Nimrod's kingdom. Now I throw all that out because I want you to understand. He was a forerunner of the Antichrist. Nimrod was the first rebel mentioned in the Bible of mankind, okay? But he is, was a prototype, a forerunner of an ultimate rebel that's coming. His name is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to do exactly what Nimrod did, only Nimrod did it locally, Babylon. The Antichrist is going to do it globally, okay? What do I mean? He's going to unite the world in a one-world government, and he will unite the world in a one-world religion, which is referred to in Revelation chapters 17 and 18. This is going to be fascinating material, and we're going to get to it very quickly, okay? Um, but um, in Revelation 17 and 18, the Antichrist's kingdom is sometimes called Babylon the Great, um, because really what started under Nimrod that was only like a foreshadowing of the ultimate rebellion that the Antichrist would bring to the whole world and uh, would be the ultimate fulfillment of what Nimrod started in Genesis 10 and 11. So let me read verse 8 again as we kind of bring this to a close. Uh, then the fourth angel poured out his bow on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. I'll say it one more time. The worship of the sun is the oldest form of idolatry in the world. And as I said, all life depends on the light of the sun, which is why every ancient culture worshipped the sun, except for Israel. But in previous judgments, a part of the sun had been dimmed, chapter 8, verse 12. But now the heat of the sun is increased, is increased. One writer said this could be referring to a supernova, the stage directly preceding the death of a star, wherein the star becomes intensely hot, before burning out and dying. Be that as it may, 
because men turn their backs on the sun, capital S-O-N, they will experience the burning of the sun, S-U-N, end quote. Anybody here ever been out in the desert on a hot day? <laughs> if you have, you better have brought some water with you. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it when my son moved to Arizona. And we had gone out there as a family to visit him and his family, right? And um, I noticed I was getting kind of lightheaded, a little dizzy. I couldn't figure out what's, what's going on. Well, come to find out that you better carry water with you everywhere you go. And you better be constantly drinking from that water because if you wait until you feel uh, dizzy, and it's, it's dehydration. And then it's a little too late. you got to sit down right away, right? Um, and that's only Arizona. It's hot, but it's not like the Sahara or some other desert in the world, right? Um, remember, at this point, Earth's fresh water has now been poisoned. So where are people getting any water from? Maybe they had some stored up that didn't get touched, but that was only a limited supply, right? Um, but you can imagine how people are going to be suffering from thirst at this time. Another serious consequence of the sun's intense heat. And I thought this was interesting. And we'll have to really close with this. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, you know, I got to close. I'm sorry. There is another interesting consequence uh, of the sun's intense heat. And we'll have to uh, save that for next time. Sorry to do that to you. I just can't get into it and do it justice. With, we're out of time. All right? But uh, you can chew on that for a while, and we'll come back and pick it up where we left off. So come on back. Father, we thank you that, Lord, even though this world has gotten so wicked and sinful, you still love people, and Jesus died for everyone. Anyone can be saved. It's a shame, a tragedy, that many will spend eternity in hell who did not have to go to hell. It was not your desire that they be damned to hell. You brought, gave your son that they might have everlasting life. But we thank you, Lord, that you've opened our eyes. We thank you that we are looking for Jesus' return. This world is terminal. It's corrupt. It's like a giant cancerous boil. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're coming back soon. And when you do, you're going to establish your kingdom. First of all, you're going to heal the planet. I believe you're going to make it like it was before the fall, like the Garden of Eden. And we are going to live in this world, your people now. We'll live in a beautiful world, a tropical paradise. Um, for a thousand years on the earth before, we move into the eternal state, which we can't even imagine what that's going to be like. So we thank you, Lord, as evil men grow worse and worse, as you predicted. We find ourselves longing like John the Apostle who said, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.